Welcome back, everyone, to Season 4 of Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast. Again, this is your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service with the Notre Dame Alumni Association, and I'm pleased to be joined today by Joe Delaney. Joe is actually a friend of the university and has an interesting connection with Notre Dame through our clubs network as well as our Alumni Association board. And we'll get into that, as we always do, with our guests. But, Joe, I just wanted to say welcome to the Faith in D podcast. Dan, it's a pleasure to be with you. So, Joe, if you would, just introduce yourself to the audience. Tell us a little bit about where you come from. I live currently in Staten Island, New York, where I have been living for the last 49 years. I grew up in West Orange, New Jersey. I married a wonderful woman from Staten Island. And when we decided where we lived, I compromised and decided we'd go to Staten Island. (laughs) I'm very proud to be in Staten Island. And my professional life, uh, I spent 41 years at the uh, great firm of Deloitte. I retired in December 2010 as a retired managing director. Now, in that intervening years from moving to Staten Island and retiring from Deloitte, I became uh, very involved with the Notre Dame Club of Staten Island. Mm -hmm. And Dan, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the outreach that was made to me in 1990, 1990-91, by the alumni of the Notre Dame Club to ask uh, me to be a participant and to engage with the club in their activities on the island. Now, the first thing I told them, Dan, was to check my background. I have a degree from Seton Hall University, not uh-huh. the University <laughs> of Notre Dame. But they they told me that th- their club was going to be open to friends and people who shared the values of Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the other part of my story. When I was growing up, my idol was my dad. And unfortunately, he died when I was 14 years old. Hmm. But he instilled in me a love of Notre Dame. My dad was a blue collar. He was a policeman and a uh, factory worker in uh, West Orange in Orange, New Jersey. But he always had that dream and love of Notre Dame. And uh, he instilled it in me. And his hero, uh, although he had many who were uh, football players and coaches, his real hero was Father Ted. Hmm. And he told me a story uh, when I was a little boy about when Father Ted was – announced as president of the university in 1952 and the announcement was made and he came out to a press conference and a uh, reporter threw a football at father ted told him to catch it and father ted said would you have done that if you were here for the announcement of the president of harvard so father very gently put the ball down and talked about what his goals were Hmm. for academic excellence and spirituality at notre dame But that inspiring story was what motivated me to try to go to Notre Dame. But when my dad died, when I was 14, there was no way that my mom, uh, who was a sales clerk, could afford the tuition and to pack me off to Notre Dame. So I proudly went four years uh, to Seton Hall University. I day hopped, which meant that I lived at home, had two part-time jobs, and got my degree from Seton Hall. and very proud of it. Mm -hmm. But there was always that goal of, of, of being a part of the Notre Dame family, not just because of listening to the Irish on the radio with football, but to also 
see what Father Tesberg and Father Joyce were doing with the university and how much I was always interested in. I saw my firm, Deloitte, being a very uh, active recruiter on campus. And many Notre Dame alumni came to work and became partners and business associates of mine. So when I moved to Staten Island, several years after being on the island, the Notre Dame Club of Staten Island, through community activities that both of us were involved in, Dr. Uh, Robert Griswold, and Dick Creedon, Griswold from class of 74, Creedon is 62, invited me to become a member of the club and to work on many of their social activities that they had in community service projects. And I accepted their offers and never regretted it once. <laughs> never looked back on becoming a member of the Notre Dame Club. Yeah, I know in, in talking with a lot of folks from the Staten Island Club and just uh, knowing a bit of your story, they've been really grateful to have you. I'm curious about your upbringing and the practice of your faith. Can you give us a sense of what were some of the important lessons of faith and work ethic that those in your family gave you? I think the story that I related about Father Ted and the direction that he saw the university take, but not just in academic excellence, but in spiritual enrichment. It was an exciting time for me, Dan, to be at Seton Hall University when the Second Vatican Council was in progress. Right. And I knew that Father Ted and the priest at Notre Dame, as well as the priest at Seton Hall and around the world, were excited by uh, Pope John XXIII's call to a giornamento to renew the church and to explain the practical applications of the faith and living the word of Christ. And one of the things I remember they taught us at Seton Hall that, that I hope guided my development of my faith, and I thought very well complemented by my involvement with the Notre Dame Club, was that of all the church documents, there was one called The Church in the Modern World. Mm-hmm. And I think I've probably read that once or twice a year uh, for the last 40 or 50 years. And the reason I did it, it's a spiritual reflection upon what it means to be a Christian in the modern world and how to seek, as is in the document, it talked about peace being an enterprise in social justice. Mm-hmm. And I see what Christ taught us in his ministry about uh, reaching out to the poor, healing the sick. And this was God incarnate who was telling us to do this. And if we wanted to be truly faithful to him, we had to follow his example. So I got very excited about my faith at that time when I was in college and subsequently as I began my professional life at Deloitte. And uh, then when I came to be involved with the Notre Dame uh, Alumni Association and with the Spirituality and Service Committee, I see coming to a full circle, Hmm. uh, a complement of that belief that my faith is the good works that I do in the name of Christ and how... It, it ties in with the Eucharist, that mm. it's all encompassing of uh, uh, my actions to, to manifest Christ to the world through my, through my good works, hopefully. Yeah, well, that's beautiful that we, we become what we receive and then we're sent out to be Christ in the world. So what a, what a great connection and witness and encouragement for all of us, really. 
Joe, I, I've known you for a little while, but I didn't know that you lost your dad at such a young age. And I'm sure an event like that could really derail a person or, or set them on a different path than uh, what they may have originally thought. Can you give us some insight into what that was like as a young man to lose your father and maybe how you have honored him in the way that you've lived your life since then? Right. I think what it was uh, as, as discouraging in his heart breaking as it was to lose my dad three weeks before I graduated from the eighth grade. Hmm. And I was an altar boy at his mass. And I was comforted by the fact that in his last year, he was very sick, but I was by his side along with my sister. And I kind of looked at the life he had led. And he was only 51 when he died. But Dan, in 1959, Men and women who went through the Depression, the Second World War, they were a lot older than many of us who get to 59 now or 51. Yeah. Sure. It, it was it, it, his life experience. And, and, and one of the things my dad was very devoted to was our Blessed Lady. Mm-hmm. He always carried his rosaries. And that was an example for me. And I know that when, when he passed away, I figured... I wanted to live the life that he would be proud of me for. Yeah. And and I had to then understand to do the right thing, to be supportive of my mother, who was a very spiritual and encouraging presence in my life. But it, it was difficult when you didn't have that father presence. But I was able to rely upon my faith. And I also believe that I was able through the communion of saints to communicate with my father. Mm-hmm. He knew what I was doing. And I, I, I say many times when I'm out at Notre Dame, I said, dad, can you really believe I'm here <laughs> at many of things? And my, my, my thought that he was always with me helped me keep my bearings because I didn't take for granted that many young people have parents who love them, but, you know, they go through the age, uh, I really don't need to see my mom at this event or, you know, mm-hmm. well, I didn't have my dad to watch me play high school football. Yeah, I didn't have my dad to see me join the honor society at school. So I knew he was present, but I didn't take, you know, sometimes people take for granted what they have in their dads. And, and I realized that I was always going to make sure that what I did would have made him proud of me. And I, I say that in my adult life, as I try to be a loving husband to Nancy, a devoted father to my children and my grandchildren, and to be a, a faithful servant of Christ. That's uh, a tremendous legacy you carry on, and I'm sure have done it well. You talked about your time at Seton Hall and your growth there. Can you tell us what led you to the career path that you chose and and how that came about? Well, I was a non-CPA partner at Deloitte. Mm -hmm. My role, I was not an accounting major, but my role was interested in human resources and people development and continuing education. And when I was interviewed for a position with the firm, I knew that I was going into an area of human resource, staff scheduling, and audit development. I loved it yeah, because it allowed me to work with the partners in developing within our staff people who 
would have to be successful in their professional life by service. I saw a great deal of analogy between working at a firm like Deloitte, being a part of a very prominent law firm, let us say, or another professional organization, because your talents and your achievements at these firms is based upon how you grasp serving your clients. That's an important part of success. And I thrived in that environment. Sometimes people are more comfortable when tasks are defined and they're told to do this, do that, and there's a certain career points in the ladders. Well, in a firm like Deloitte, as in the other professional accounting service firms and and law firms, the people who make partner or directors are those that recognize that the whole reason why we're there is to serve our clients. Mm-hmm. And I saw an analogy between what I was doing for my clients to my faith. Yeah in serving the community. And Dan, what made even it more of a rewarding career at Deloitte, as I progressed through management and did become a leader in the firm, I was able to help develop a lot of corporate leadership programs of community involvement and service. Because we had a lot of talented people who knew tax codes and consulting services and how to do business right. And we set up a network of volunteering our time to help organizations, not-for-profits in New York City that needed professional help. And I wasn't surprised when we put out the word to our staff, would you like to volunteer to be a mentor, to be someone to work in a soup kitchen? Would you like to lend your talents to a not-for-profit organization that needs help? The response was overwhelmingly, yes, Mm-hmm. And yet we were people that, you know, here's a staff, you're working 45 to 60 hours a week. And now along comes Joe Delaney and some of the partners asking you to give maybe three or four hours extra a week to work with a theater company or to work with the Salvation Army in a soup kitchen or to mentor some high school kids in New York City. But a lot of times it's because we don't ask people to do things mm. that we don't get things done. So in my career at Deloitte, we, we took the ability to serve our clients and, and serve them well with whatever problems they had, teach our people how to be responsive to that call for service, and then turn around and say, you know, we can be a great corporate citizen in New York City, hmm. and people will see us for what it was. And that had residual effects. People were impressed that Deloitte We had good community service programs that developed leadership among our staffs and had an impact in the community, helped build our diversity programs within the firm, and really challenged us. And Dan, if I could, I used to remember talking to recruits who would come in to visit the New York office as they think about a career at Deloitte. And invariably, I usually got asked by my partners to at least talk a little bit about our community service programs with Notre Dame with Notre Dame seniors or Mm. Notre Dame graduate schools or students that were coming in. And one of the things I always said, Dan, I thought there was a great synergy between Deloitte and Notre Dame Mm. because both attained professional excellence in their fields, education and professional services. But I said there was a culture of giving and service at both institutions that I think if you come to Deloitte, you will feel very comfortable. But I'll dare say that any other good 
professional service firm could make that same pitch to Notre Dame graduates and graduates of other schools as well. Mm. But I just saw from my experience with the Notre Dame programs that we have and seeing how we work with our alumni, that there was a good synergy between Notre Dame's culture and Deloitte's. Yeah, I think it's a great example because there's a lot of people out there who are in jobs that aren't directly related to faith. You know, they're not necessarily working for the church or or doing something in that regard. And yet, as people of faith, they have a desire to serve and sometimes aren't exactly sure how to do that. But it sounds like your encouragement and the effort on behalf of the firm really gave people that kind of outlet that says, you know, I can be a good accountant or, or, or whatever my role is within the firm, and yet I can still look out for, you know, my fellow human beings and, and be of service to them. It may not be directly related to my job, but it certainly comes out of that position of service to others. Yeah, absolutely. And Dan, one of the things, in, and I think it was important in the firm's evaluation of my performance was, although I, I believe I did my job very well within the firm, they also knew I was not one-dimensional, mm-hmm. that I had other activities within the community that brought a very positive image of Deloitte to people in the Department of Education of the city of New York, because they saw us mentoring with high school kids, or within other community groups that here's a very important professional service firm that is very very interested in the well-being of the whole community. And it also told partners evaluating my candidacy for managing director and others is that Joe has a real sense of service, totality, Mm -hmm. not just in serving our clients, but it seems like he gets it with the community and how that is also something that comes residually back to the firm in a very positive way. And as one person said, you really like this work. And I said, absolutely. <laughs> and that's why I don't think I could do anything else. And that's why, again, the the Notre Dame Alumni Association and the Six C's program is such a perfect complement uh, also to what I do. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, a struggle that anyone has who has what sounds like a pretty successful professional career is how to balance that with the demands of, of marriage and family, if that's part of one's vocation. So can you give us some background into your marriage to Nancy and and your kids, your family? Tell us a little bit more about that, if you would, please. Dad, it's been a very easy transition because my family is involved in many of the programs that I volunteer and work with, and I don't have to force them to do it. In fact, they complement my contributions to organizations. So therefore, Nancy becomes very engaged mm-hmm. with the Bread of Life food drive and has been for 25 years. She's a retired employee of the Department of Education, where she worked in the schools with children with special needs. Well, she was the Bread of Life coordinator at all of the schools that she was involved with, and she encouraged her other teachers and colleagues in in the public school system to be involved with us in the bread of life. My son, Joseph, was an active volunteer with the bread of life, but he too followed his dad's footsteps in going to Deloitte. Mm -hmm. But uh, he was the accountant in the family. He was a proud graduate of Fairfield University. 
Mm-hmm. And he used his skills up in Bridgeport, Connecticut, while he was at Fairfield and subsequently when he came to Deloitte, to mentoring young people in programs that were developing leadership within the schools. So the schools in the seventh and eighth grades were looking to get at kids so that they could have the young people take seriously the challenges coming up for high school and how they could prepare themselves for applications to college or careers that that they needed to look at. My daughter, Tracy, she took a different route when she graduated from NYU. She went to Japan where for two years she worked as a translator. She was a Japanese major at NYU. And she studied a year at Waseda University in Tokyo in her junior year. And upon graduation from NYU with a Phi Beta Kappa, she went to work with the United States State Department in a people-to-people program where she was the assistant to the mayor of Yokohama in developing language programs for his staff to better serve the English-speaking population of Yokohama as an effort to develop business for the Japanese city and the Japanese government. And upon her graduation, and upon her two years completion of the State Department assignment, where she really perfected her language skills, she too went to work at Deloitte as a consultant Hmm. and spent three years there in Tokyo, and then went back to Deloitte in New York, and then Deloitte Consulting Center to London to work on American Express, which was a client that she has been in, was involved in for many years serving at the, at the firm. So when she went to London on a transfer, she never left. She took a job with American Express, and today she is a director of business for American Express in London. She is uh, married to a wonderful man who is an investment banker, and they have three children. Oh, great. But my two children and my wife, anything that I got involved in, I always involved my family. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have to twist their arms because we enjoyed being together. I had many long hours I had to work at the firm. But I never missed the important Little League game, the important concert recital, graduation that they had. Mm-hmm. But when it came time to doing things with the family, we tried to do community service and service within the church as part of a family project. So that's how uh, you know I was able to spend my time on many of these events because they're working alongside of me was my wife, Nancy, and my two children. Yeah, just what a great example. And it sounds like those values have been transmitted well. So that's a wonderful thing. Now, you mentioned the Bread of Life food drive. And of course, I know about that, but a lot of our listeners may not. Can you give us a sense of what that is and how that's developed over the years? Dan, back in uh, 1992, on the 150th anniversary of the university, Father Malloy extended a challenge to all the Notre Dame alumni clubs and asked them to give a gift to their community. Do something, a community service project in the spring of 1992, and do it in the name of Our Lady's University. Mm -hmm. So on Staten Island, we were thinking of things we may have tried, maybe a project Habitat or maybe working in a uh, soup kitchen at Catholic Charities or something. And uh, we came up with the idea of doing a food drive. And somebody said, well, food drives, uh, they're usually done at Thanksgiving and Christmas. But we came up with the idea that 
hey, maybe people who really need it because this is when people aren't collecting or giving food. So hmm. we started a, uh, something we called the Bread of Life Food Drive. And we went to schools because we were wondering where would we get the food. And Nancy suggested that some of the schools, public and Catholic schools, would, would love to be involved in a project that would create a culture of giving within their school. So we got six schools together. They gave us four to 5,000 items of food. And we gave it to three organizations, not for profit, and said, this is a gift from the University of Notre Dame. And the organizations were thrilled. And as we suspected, they were quite pleased because nobody had really given them food in the spring. Mm -hmm. So the impact was felt when about two weeks later, a nun from Catholic Charities came over to me and said, I really want to thank you guys again for for doing this. And I said, sister, I wish we could have given you more. And she said, Joseph, um, what I really wanted to tell you was how important it is to do this in the time of the year that you have. Mm -hmm. But with having said that, sister prodded us along with the Holy Spirit that we went back to the club and if everybody had a good time, how about we do this in 1993? We'll do it again. So everybody said, okay. So the next thing you know, in 93, we had 12 schools. Hmm. Last year, we had 131 schools on Staten Island. Wow. We collected, we collected 70,000 items of food that we gave to 26 not-for-profit organizations on Staten Island that serve people in need. Now, why we grew, I, I, I think, is truly a matter of my faith. Because every time we started to expand the program, my club members would go to Dr. Griswold and myself and the leadership and say, wait a minute, we may be biting off more than we can chew. You know, <laughs> we, we only have so many people in our club. And, right. <laughs> and I said, you know, you're right, but uh, that's not my problem. It's God's because he got me started in this. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and I said a prayer. And, and I, I truly believe it. When we were really at a point of could we take on more schools and more organizations, a friend of mine named Dennis Hughes called me. Now, Dennis Hughes was a plumber, but he and, and, and he also had a, a brother who was an electrician. And Dennis and the electricians approached me and said, you know, we in the unions are looking for projects to do sort of like what corporations do. Mm -hmm. Now, most of these uh, friends who were in the electricians and the other unions were all Catholic boys and girls, most of them by and large, yeah. and they identified with Notre Dame right away. So we asked them if they would help us. Sure. Would they lend us their trucks? Would they lend us their manpower and women power? Would they lend us their skills? And the next thing you know, we also received help from small businesses. Then we heard from faith-based organizations, veterans groups, because, Dan, trying to collect and sort 70,000 items of food in two weeks and deliver them all on one day, we needed an army of about 300 people, and we got them, and we have them. Yeah. And that's, that's where I truly believe the Holy Spirit and, and Notre Dame, our mother, was looking over our project. And we have successfully run that program for 29 years. Next year, next spring, will be our 30th anniversary of doing the Bread of Life. Wow. Now, there was one twist to this past year. It was virtual in many cases because by the time the spring came, the schools were closed. 
So instead of collecting food, we collected money. Hmm. And we collected the money and gave it to the food pantries to buy the foods and to get gift cards for their recipients. Because the demand, Dan, as you know, there's been more of a demand for food now than ever because so many people have been put out of work by the pandemic and people who have never gone to a food pantry have now had to go because the breadwinner in the family had lost their job and they needed food to support their family. But the Bread of Life has not just centered its success in Staten Island, it's spread across the country to 270 to 280 cities affiliated with either Notre Dame clubs Mm -hmm. or with Holtz's Heroes. In 2013, I was approached by Randy Kinder, former running back for Notre Dame, Mm -hmm. who was an executive, is an executive down in Washington with the AFL-CIO Investment Trust Fund. Randy had heard through the union movement here in New York City what Notre Dame Staten Island Club was doing in New York City and Brooklyn and said, I'd like to talk to these guys. So he came up and he took a look at what we were doing. He was very impressed. He saw how the men and women of the AFL-CIO and the police unions, electricians, the carpenters, the firemen were all helping us and the teachers. He said, this is great. So he then calls me back after visiting us and said, I'd like you to talk to Lou Holtz. I said, what? You want me to talk to who? He said, Joe, we have a a group then known as Lou's Lads, now called Holtz's Heroes. Mm -hmm. And he said, Coach is looking for projects for us to do. They have done a wonderful amount of fundraising and great work within their organization for their members in the community. But Coach wanted them to do something. Mm Mm-hmm. So Joey, my son, and I were flown out. We went out to meet with uh, Derek Mays and Randy Kinder, Brian Baker, and the leaders of the Lose Lads board and coach himself. Mm -hmm. And when we explained what we we did, like collecting food from local communities and that everybody could pretty much do their own thing, but it had to be done in the spring and they had to collect food to give to a local organization. So it's not like... The impression was you collect the food and then ship it back to Staten Island. No. Right, you right. collect the food in Detroit, Dallas, in Pontiac, Michigan, wherever you were. And we would just grow this. And we, we spread the word out to the Notre Dame alumni clubs. But by and large, uh, Holtz's former players took the ball, ran with it, passed it on. They went to their churches. They went to their faith-based groups. And each year we would add more and more and more organizations working with us to collect food. So we we really now have the bread of life in over 36, well, in 36 states, hmm. in over 280 cities. And again, this year we had to use that infrastructure we have during COVID to virtually collect food and collect food on a real-time basis when we can. Yeah. But it's been something I've been very proud of. And Dan, I think it, it, it's just a testimony to having faith in God that if you have the will and the plan to do it, the inspiration will come to you and it'll inspire other people. And needless to say, using the name of Notre Dame Bread of Life makes volunteers. As one electrician told me, he said, being part of this is like being a part of something bigger than myself. Right. And 
and and I said amen to that. But it's having these wonderful men and women, blue collar, white collar workers, helping their neighbors, and it's a, a great way to bridge gaps between the communities. Yeah, it has a bit of a loaves and fishes feel <laughs> that you know our meager offerings combined with. God's grace can do tremendous things. And so what a what a legacy that the Bread of Life Food Drive has had all over the country. And it's really, really great to see how that's grown. I do want to touch on something that you have a pretty personal experience with, and that's uh, September 11th. Uh, hard to believe that we just passed uh, 19 years, the anniversary of September 11th, but you were still working with Deloitte at the time, can you give us some details into what your experience of that tragedy was? I sure can, Dan. In fact, I, I go back eight years before 9-11 to February 26, 1993. I was on the 100th floor of One World Trade Center mm-hmm. the first time a terrorist bomb went off in the basement. Right. A car bomb went off. I helped evacuate the people within my firm from the World Trade Center. We, at that point in the spring of 1993, decided to relocate uh, across the street to the World Financial Center. We still stayed committed to New York City and lower Manhattan. So eight years later, on the morning of September the 11th, 2001, I was across the street, and at 8.45, I heard a, a noise and when you work in Manhattan, you always hear some kind of noise sometimes right. in the morning. Yeah. And it was the first plane crashing into Tower One. Mm-hmm. An announcement came across in the building we were at, the World Financial Center, saying there had been an incident at the World Trade Center. And I went to the window on the east side, looked out, and saw the tragedy that had occurred. Mm. So we quickly evaluated our people. And as we were evacuating our people out of, uh, to World Financial Center. I was literally on the street when the uh, second plane went over my head and hit Tower 2. I fell to the ground not knowing what would happen because I saw this massive orange ball flame come out when the plane hit. But when I looked up, I could see nothing but a hole in Tower 2. So here's a 747 that goes into a building like a piece of bologna into a sandwich, mm-hmm. and nothing was hanging out, but yet there was total destruction. And then I said, oh, my God, that's what happened to Tower One, because mm. the sky was crystal clear that day. Right. And you know that on a day like that, there would be no pilot error from flying into a building like that. Well, Dan, there was something also very personal to me that day. It was the 30th anniversary of my marriage to Nancy. Hmm. I was married to Nancy on September the 11th, 1971. And 30 years later on that day, I was to have only worked about a half a day. And then I was going to go home to Staten Island, pick Nancy up at school and go out and celebrate at dinner our 30th wedding anniversary. Wow. As it turned out, I never got home until Sunday morning, September the 16th. Wow. I stayed in the city. I did rescue, recovery work, nothing more than what other people had done. I did some business recovery work for the firm. But I had seen the tragedy, and and I, I was only two blocks away 
from Tower 2 when it fell, and I was able to move into a enclave in the World Financial Center that kind of saved my life. But once I, I was able to grasp what was happening, I went to our Deloitte Midtown office and from there worked on our efforts to make sure everybody that had been at the Financial Center and hopefully nobody was in the World Trade Center account for everybody. But tragically, we lost four people that day. Hmm. So I didn't get home until Sunday. And when I got home, a very interesting thing happened. Nancy said to me, there's been this young man calling you from Notre Dame, Chris Clement. I said, oh, my God, Chris, Dan Stowe. What happened was uh, five months earlier, we had planned for the Glee Club to come to Staten Island in October of 2001. And they were going to raise money for three organizations. And Nancy said, he's very concerned about you. He's left voicemail messages. Mm-hmm. I, said, it, I said, this is the Glee Club. I said, oh, I'm, I think we're going to have to cancel the, 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 the concert. I mean, there's no way we can support this and raise money. And I said, I'll be working 100 hours a week at the firm right through, I'm sure, Christmas. But mm-hmm. let me call Dan. So I, 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 I called Chris Clemens, Dan. And first thing he said, Mr. Stowe and everyone are very, very concerned. Are you okay? And I said, yes. And I said, but Chris, I I don't think the Glee Club can really come. I don't know how we're going to be able to pay for you guys to come set you up. He said, Joe, I want you to know that Dan has spoken to Father Malloy. We're going to come to Staten Island and perform the concert free. Hmm. Could we, could we, could you tell us maybe or, or use us to raise money for families affected by the tragedy? Hmm. Such a Notre Dame story. Yeah. So five weeks later, as some semblance of order is brought somewhat to the recovery of moving away at, at the World Trade Center, the buses pull in on uh, Thursday, October 20th, I think it was the day to St. Peter's Church, where the concert was going to be held on Staten Island, and the church overlooked the harbor, where you could still see the building or the ground smoldering mm-hmm. and, the, and the destruction. So in our beautiful club, we not only have, as I said, Notre Dame alumni, but Subway alums like myself. Sure. We also had many members of the FDNY and NYPD, and they took Dan and the boys in the Glee Club down to Ground Zero. They had they had connections being cops, sure. and they took the young people on the morning of the concert into Lower Manhattan. Orderly brought them right up to almost the viewing stand where dignitaries from Washington and the United States were able to view what was happening. Mm-hmm. And these kids told me later that they were so impressed, but in awe. Here they were eight weeks before just entering the campus of Notre Dame, and now they're standing in New York City viewing the tragedy of what happened on 9-11. And we said, well, that's why we brought you here. Your, 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 your concert tonight is going to bring so much comfort, mm-hmm. your music, to the people. I said to them, during the Second World War, we lost 500 people on Staten Island in four years. On 9-11, we lost 400 people in one day. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people that are hurting. We don't have the remains of any of most of the people who died. And your concert that night is going to lift a lot of people. 
So they all come back into Staten Island. They get dressed in their tuxedos. And to my amazement, the church is packed. Hmm. We charge nothing for the concert. We just pass the basket. Sure. That was that was it. We and along the walls of the church were firemen, policemen, rescue workers, and we knew many people in that congregation had lost someone that day. And Dan had the Dan Stowe had the guys come up from the basement in the church and they're ready to walk into the church and right in front of them cuts off a fire department bagpipe band. And the bagpipe band leads the glee club up the aisle as they come into the church. Hmm. One of the young people said to me later, Mr. Delaney, we always get a standing ovation at a Notre Dame glee club concert. But this is the first time I got a standing ovation as we entered the building. Yeah, They went on the altar of the church and they sang, many of them said, like they've never sung before, because what they saw earlier that morning had inspired them. And we normally saved giving gifts to them at the end of the concert. But half the firemen and policemen who were ringing the church and were outside with their fire rigs had to go back to ground zero, and they were going to be replaced by another half of the men and women in, in the fire department, police department, who wanted to come and hear some of the concert. Right. So the police members of our club, myself, our president, we gave them little badges that said NYPD and FDNY, and we gave them FDNY. New York Port Authority and NYPD baseball caps, the caps that many people may remember seeing the Yankees wearing. Right. Another. So they took their caps and they put it in their tuxedos. They thanked us. They left. We had their intermission break. They came back and they closed the concert in probably one of the most emotional moments that I was ever able to be associated with, especially with Notre Dame. They sang uh, the alma mater. Mm-hmm. They had sang the Ave Maria, and then they broke into the Victory March. And while they were singing the Victory March, they reached into their pockets and they put their NYPD, FDNY, Port Authority police hats on. Hmm. There wasn't a dryer in the church. And I still get emotional talking about it. Sure. And... Dan, I have gone back to Notre Dame for alumni conferences, and somebody will say, you're that guy from Staten Island. I said, yeah, I'm Joe. And he said, you may not remember me, but I was in the Glee Club in 2001. They said to us, "This many of us felt that concert changed their their life. Because here's the interesting point, three years later, the seniors in 2004 came back to sing at the St. Peter's Church yeah. as we were approaching the fifth anniversary of 9-11. And there were 17 of them who were freshmen on 2001, and now 17 of them are seniors in 2004. Okay. Dan allowed each one of them to say a few words to the people of Staten Island and the Notre Dame Club of what that experience meant when, as I had alluded to before, they were young kids from Iowa or California or Kansas or Washington who had come to Notre Dame that that early fall of 2001 and then went into New York City and saw what happened at the Trade Center. And 
many of the young men said they changed my life. One, one young man said, I'm now going to medical school because of just what I saw that day and how I wanted to rededicate my life. The fire department gave Dan and the uh, Glee Club a picture of um, all 343 firefighters that died that day. Hmm. They they gave it to them in 2004. Yeah, they, We just didn't have that all put together in 2001. But Dan, 9-11 has always been a very important time for us on Staten Island. And the last Notre Dame tie-in is what we did as a club a year after 9-11. So it's 2002. And as we approach 2002, the club decides we're not going to bring the Glee Club back, but we, we really need to do something that would remember that day and put it in the contents of Notre Dame and our Catholic faith. So we came up with a service called the Eve of Solemn Remembrance. Mm-hmm. And it was built upon the Christian tradition of the Eve, the watch into the night. Yeah, the vigil, right. Yeah. So so what we did was we didn't hold our event on 9-11 itself, the actual day, because everybody else in New York City, from the mayor to the all the dignitaries, they were holding services. We held it on the night before. Hmm. And we had a concelebrated mass, a candlelight procession. And we read the names of all the people who had died from Staten Island. And we asked the people to read those names. Some of them were, of course, members of our club. But what we did is we targeted the leaders of our high school Bread of Life program to join us in reading that because we didn't want the young people to ever forget Mm -hmm. what this day and what this service meant. And I'm proud to say that uh, a month ago, we held our uh, 18th Eve of Solemn Remembrance. And again, it was reflective of the times. Not only were we remembering the historic occasion of 9-11, but we had to hold it in a church where we normally have 300 people filling the church. We could only have 60. Mm -hmm. And everybody was social distancing. Unfortunately, we didn't have our color guard from the police, the fire, the army, the Knights of Columbus, the (laughs) KSC. They were with us by live streaming. Yeah. What we did is we live streamed a mass, and hopefully next year we will have in 2021 a remembrance again. But Dan, thank you for bringing that up because it, it was not just personal to me because of my proximity to the day of the attack, my engagement with Deloitte, but it's also the fact that my strong faith in Notre Dame and our belief that our Blessed Mother, Our Lady of Sorrows, would come and comfort us. Mm-hmm. And she has every year. And we're hoping that if Notre Dame travel restrictions are lifted or put in place, that we could get Dan and the Glee Club back next fall for the 20th anniversary of the concert yeah. that they performed so wonderfully five weeks after 9-11. Well, it's just a beautiful story, and, and thanks for that reminder. Obviously, there's a, an effort to, to never forget, never forget. And it's not just to not forget the tragedy of that day and the, and the people who lost their lives and so many family and friends affected, but some of the lessons of solidarity that followed where just our, our shared common humanity, people reached out to each other and, and helped, and that that's the kind of thing that we can we can achieve again. And so... I mean, I really appreciate uh, what an amazing, amazing story you've shared with us. So thank you. Thank you, Dan. I do want to get to 
your time on our Notre Dame Alumni Association board because that's a pretty unique thing. You were the first non-alumnus to serve on our board as we restructured things. And as you mentioned, Notre Dame Club of Staten Island, you've been such a great member of that club. A lot of our clubs around the country and around the world certainly welcome alumni and friends. Uh, Anyone who wants to be a part of a club can be, but up until uh, your time on the board, there wasn't a non-alumnus who served on the board. So could you give our audience some insight into what it was like to be asked and then your experience while you were on the board? I can remember the phone call from Dolly Duffy asking me to join the board as if the call was yesterday, although it was two and a half years ago. Yeah, And it took me all of about a nanosecond to say, absolutely, I'd be delighted to do it. <laughs> I was honored to be asked, and I, I felt that a sense of great responsibility was put upon me, perhaps not unlike when my dad died. Mm-hmm. And I was a 14-year-old boy that started to have to realize there's a lot of serious things you're going to have to do in a sense of responsibility and start learning it now. Well, I felt that being asked to be the first non-alum on the board was going to require me to do the best job I could possibly do for the board. I think I everything I did, either at my firm or, or with the Notre Dame Club of Staten Island and the work with the six C's was to give my best to do it. But this was like a God-given opportunity to be able to say, okay, now you can really hopefully make a contribution uh, to Our Lady's University because uh, through Dolly, uh, Notre Dame is is asking you to lend your talents once again Mm -hmm. to uh, the betterment of, of our programs and Our Lady's University. So the only thing I did, Dan, and in full disclosure, you know, I lobbied like hell to get on your committee for spirituality <laughs> and, and service, and I also felt I could, I could, uh, I could make a contribution to the club's committee. I think even Dolly and everybody knew I would make no contribution to the technology committee. <laughs> that wasn't my comfort zone, and I got on the committee assignments that I had. And it was uh, something that I know my dad, I mean, I remember my first alumni meeting, I went down to the grotto as I did on every every visit to Notre Dame. But I said, in my prayer, dad, could you actually believe I'm here? Mm-hmm. And in this capacity, many times that I've been out there for football games or other meetings, sure. it was always, I never lost the thrill, never do, never will, <laughs> of going on campus. Yeah, This one was special. Because the next day I was going to be introduced at a breakfast to get up, introduce myself to my fellow board members, and then from there take on the responsibilities that uh, my committee assignments asked me to do. Mm -hmm. Well, it's been a great honor to have you as part of the board and personally as part of my committee, especially your contributions in helping us start the Chuck and Joan Lennon Gospel of Life Initiative, which honored our late executive director, Chuck Lennon, and his wife, Joan, in a lot of pro-life outreach and ministries. So thank you for your many contributions there and elsewhere. As a final question, we do like to ask our guests about holiness because that's what our podcast is called. You've talked about a lot of people in your life and, and so many of these stories that exhibit holiness 
If you could sum up for us, though, how or what are the principles by which you've lived your life that help you pursue holiness? And are there any models, particular models of holiness that have really stuck with you throughout your life? Dan, I think as I think back on my last few years in high school and my time entering college, I think of the beloved memory of St. Pope John the 23rd. Hmm. And I, I, I look at his face. I remember as a little boy, I was in the eighth grade when he was elected. It didn't really mean much to me. It was nice news. But I think as I, I, I was developed in my faith through high school and then over at Seton Hall, I could understand what he was trying to do with the council. Mm-hmm. But I think the most important thing I remember reading about him subsequently was his courage in being holy and humble. He was not a very impressive looking man. Hmm. He was, he was your, you could have been your typical Italian fisherman. And he had a warmth in his, in his eyes and in, in, in what he wanted to do for the church. And I remember reading a story that not soon after he was put on the throne of St. Peter's, he made a point of reaching out to the rabbi of, of Rome. Mm-hmm. Because he had seen the horrors of what the Nazis had done in parts of Turkey and other parts of Eastern Europe right. when he was cardinal and archbishop. And when the rabbi came in to where the Pope was sitting, John got immediately up from his throne and walked down and threw his arms open and said, I am your brother, Joseph. Hmm. I'm your brother, Joseph. And he hugged the rabbi. And I think as I've over the years read those words, I'd like people, if I could see them, to let them know I am their brother, Joseph. Mm-hmm. And I'm their brother in times of need. I'm their brother in times of celebration. I'm just someone that would be there for other people. And what sustains me in keeping that thought is my devotion to the Eucharist. Hmm. Nancy and I try to go to Mass every day, and we live the life of the Eucharist in our lives because it's so encompassing. It engages us through the Eucharist and all the people around us, not just at Mass, but when we leave church and we go through our daily routines. To be able to think that we walk out of church and we are carrying with us in our presence uh, the body and blood of Christ, the Eucharist, it's very sobering when you then get in a car and somebody cuts you off and you want to curse them out. You got to realize, wait a minute. That was the beauty of Pope John. And then beauty of what maybe my spiritual life is, I know I can start over again because mm-hmm. I have the forgiveness of Christ and I have the sustaining grace of the Eucharist. So the Eucharist, but again, of all the heroes that I've had in many in my life of people and my father and, and other people in my family and and maybe some prominent people in life. It was that simple, loving bishop of Rome who really, I think, changed. Because I always think, Dan, you know, if it wasn't for John the 23rd, there would have been no Pope John Paul. Mm. There would have been no Cardinal Ratzinger. Mm -hmm. Because without the council, none of these uh, great leaders that we had in the church came about. Mm. 
And again, if I could follow his humility, and I have plenty to be humble about, (laughs) it's to take that humility and use it to serve uh, people. And I can't thank you and Dolly and Mike for giving me the opportunity through my association with the Notre Dame Alumni Association to serve not only the people in the Notre Dame family, but people in the family of God. Well, it's a beautiful example that you've given us and... I can personally attest to, and I hope people, as they hear the story of your contributions at Deloitte and the Club of Staten Island and the Bread of Life Food Drive and the Gospel of Life Initiative, I mean, on and on and on, uh, you have been a brother, a true brother to, to so many people. So thank you for that, Joe. Thank you for your example to all of us. And thank you for joining me for the podcast. It was really fun to hear more of your story and, and I'm excited to share that with our audience. Dan, God bless you and God bless your family. And thank you so much for this opportunity to speak with you. Absolutely. God bless you as well. Well, that concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast. If you'd like to receive notification of future episodes of the podcast, you're welcome to subscribe to any podcast subscription of your choosing, as well as to subscribe via email to our daily gospel reflection at faith.nd.edu slash sign up. There, in addition to receiving notifications of the podcast, you'll also receive a reflection from a member of the Notre Dame family on the day's gospel. Thank you for being with us, and until next time, you will be in our prayers. Mm